Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. of my message today is mountains, buttons, cycles, and coming home. Mountains, buttons, cycles, and coming home. Um, When when our kids were younger, my wife and I, we have three kids together, and uh, we had them, all of our kids are 18 months apart. Okay, so it's very close together, right? Um, And we, I remember for a long time, we did not go out to eat with our children when they were younger. Uh, partially because it was a lot to manage and partially because we did not want to be hated by everyone else in the restaurant. How many of you, just be honest, you've gone to a restaurant and there was a family and they were being crazy and you're just like, somebody needs to ask them to leave, right? You thought that. How many of you thought that and you were the family that you thought people should ask to leave? Yeah. I've been in both situations. I'm just being real with you. And, uh, you know, restaurants, they know that this is chaotic. It's hard to entertain kids. So they do this thing to help you. They give you that little crayon pack. You know what I'm talking about? The little folded up sheet and those four little crayons. And they're like, here, this will keep your kids entertained for hours on end. And so we would give our kids the, the pack of crayons or whatever. And it was supposed to like calm down the situation and make everything smooth. This thing started more fights amongst our kids than it solved. Because one kid would be coloring and then the other kid would be like, well, I want the green. And we're like, oh, you have a green. They're like, no, I want his green. Well, it's the, same, it's the same green. It's like, no, it's different. I don't like my, I want his green. So like, okay, you can have, he's not using the, you can have his green. Well, now that they have the other green, then it's like, well, now I want the green back. You're not even using the green. But I liked that, knowing that it was close. I liked it being here. It was a comfort green to me. And they start feuding and fighting about it, you know. And, and sometimes I would just get so worked up because they're fighting and the thing they're fighting about is stupid, you know. It's just so dumb because I'm just like, it's all, it's all the same. It's all the same crayons, right? I could go get you 50 green crayons. They're like, I don't want that. I want his crayon. And then I would break that crayon in half and give part to each kid. Now everybody's happy. They're like, no, he got the point. I got the butt. And I'm like, you know what? Everybody's butts is going to pay if you guys don't calm it down. And it would just work me up so much. And it wasn't even just that they were feuding. It's that they were feuding over something that just is so nonsensical to me. And I just, I have very little patience for stupid fights. How many of you have just come up on people, maybe, probably not even kids, because adults do this. You've come up on some people, grown people, and they're fighting about something and they're so passionate and you're like, oh man, this is gonna be good. And then you get up and you overhear and you're like, that's what you're fighting about? This is dumb. How many of you have been there before? It's just ridiculous. And you just wanna like take their heads and knock them into each other because it's just nonsensical. And the thing that works me up about kids where it's like logically this is inconsequential, I think adults sometimes are just as big of offenders. Sometimes when I get together with uh, family or friends or whatever, people start arguing about things and things that just don't matter, things that aren't solvable, things that are subjective. People in my family will get together over the holidays and somebody will start telling a story and they'll be like, and then this thing happened, and it was 1996, and then someone interrupted. No, that was 1997. No, I'm pretty sure it was 1996. No, it was 97, I remember, because this, and it's like, literally the year has nothing to do with the story. It doesn't matter what year it happened, and they will not speak to each other for the rest of the meal 
because of a discrepancy in the year, right? People will argue about like which sports team is the best, which is subjective, unless you're talking about NBA and then it's the Lakers. Everybody knows that. So there's no reason to even have a discussion, you know what I mean, about that thing. People in my family will get worked up and argue about something of like trying to figure out like if a historical figure would like or dislike something. And it's like, there's no way to know this, right? We're never gonna know if Martin Luther King Jr. would listen to Jay-Z. We're not gonna know. He's dead, okay? I don't know, we can argue about it. It is not worth getting worked up about. We are not gonna solve this one together today. Can you guys please just calm down? And I think there are so many things that get us worked up that ultimately are frivolous. There's this, this phrase that you've probably heard that I remember my grandma saying when I was a kid, don't make a mountain out of a molehill. Have you heard this before? And it essentially means like, don't take something that's small and insignificant and blow that thing up to where it's so big that it creates this massive chasm between you and another person. Don't make a bigger deal out of something than it really is. And yet, I think the things that we fight about aren't just little molehills. Sometimes the things that separate us and somebody else really are mountains. And I think that's the question that I wanna wrestle with today as we're talking about family and specifically people that we find ourselves sort of estranged from in family. What happens when the thing between you and someone else is a mountain? It's a big thing. It's something that is... There's no pretending it didn't happen. There's no pretending it didn't hurt you. There's no pretending it didn't change the, the way the relationship worked after that thing happened. It's not an easy thing to brush under the rug. Most people would look at that thing and say, that's a big deal. Like maybe it was somebody in your family like came out real strong and let you know that they thought it was a horrible idea for you to marry the person that you are currently with. That's kind of, that's a tough one. Maybe it was the sort of situation where, you know, they said, hey, let us know if you ever need anything. And then you had a situation where you really needed something and it was really desperate and you hate asking for help, but you reached out and they didn't show up for you when you most needed them. And it wounded you. You felt abandoned in that moment. Just feels like, how do we put that back together? Maybe it was somebody that you felt like really supported you and, and had your back. And always in front of your face, they were always like cheering you on and they were so encouraging and agreeable. And then you found out that behind your back, they were saying all this stuff, they were talking all this trash. They had opposite opinions. They stabbed you in the back and you could undeniably trace it to them. And after that thing, it's sort of like, what do we do with the thing between us? And these moments tend to be relationship enders. Like these moments can lead to a, a thing, not just being distanced, but like even being dissolved altogether. And one of the things I've noticed as I've talked to people about their families is that a lot of people, a disproportionate number of people, have somebody in their family that they don't talk to anymore. Somebody that they don't really have contact with. Somebody that they don't really interact with much because something happened that can't be undone and they don't know what to do about it. And it kind of leads me to wonder, like, is this just the way it is? I mean, are there certain rifts that just can't be repaired? I think what often 
uh, happens in these moments that, that rip us apart. It's not just that someone did something to you and maybe they were never for you. It's that somebody that you trusted broke that trust. A way to say it is like, like someone that you expected to be for you took action against you and it devastated you. And it's the surprise, it's the dashed expectations that undo us. And I, I think that when we wrestle with, can things be put back together again? I think that's a tough question because if you're honest, if you're like me, there, there's certain relationships you're thinking about right now and you're just like, I don't know if I want to repair it. Maybe I shouldn't. And maybe you shouldn't. Maybe it shouldn't be put back together, at least not the way it was before. Because maybe that would be unhealthy and destructive for both of you. Like maybe it being reassembled, at least in the same way, is not good because what would be best would be you loving each other from a distance. But then there are other relationships where the thing that broke apart, it, it, you're not happy with the way it is. You're not happy with the way you left things. Maybe there's something more that you want from it, something more that you think that you ought to have from it. It's never set well with you that it just sort of fell apart and ended the way it did. And there's part of you that maybe thinks like, now that we're older, now that we've lived a little bit more life, now that each of us have grown a little bit, maybe it's possible to patch things up. And if you've ever sort of wondered that about certain people in your life, um, there is this Old Testament story about somebody who's in that exact season that I want to look at today. And it's this guy who is about to reconnect with somebody in his family that he hasn't talked to for years and years and years, a couple of decades, because of something that happened between the two of them. And he recontacts and reconnects, and then the story just sort of takes off from there. And I want to read this together and just make some observations that I think have a lot to do with our lives. This is found in Genesis chapter 32, um, verse 3. And so in this case, some of you have been wondering, like, how long have families been fighting each other since the beginning of time? Genesis 32. It says this, Jacob sent a messengers ahead to his brother Esau to tell him, humble greetings. Until now, I've been living with Uncle Laban. And I'm basically rich. I'm coming home, hoping that you'll be friendly to me. That seems pretty innocuous, right? I mean, if you just drop into the story here, if you know nothing else about these people, this context, it just sounds like one guy who is saying to his brother, like, Help, hope things are going great. I'm doing great. Can't wait to see you. Man, uh, I, I hope we have a great visit. Um, but there's actually more going on here than that. In verse six, it says this, the messengers returned to Jacob and reported, we met your brother Esau and he's on his way to meet you. Great, with an army of 400 men. And Jacob was terrified at the news. What is happening right now? Any of you, like, as you're reading this, you're just like, that escalated quickly, wow. <laughs> just like, hey buddy, hope we have a great visit. And they're like, you know what, he's actually on his way. Uh, he's got a whole army, a lot of people. Um, and suddenly his brother panics. And I think it sort of clues us in to the fact that there's more to this story than just this singular exchange. And sometimes this is the problem. Like we're trying to solve in our lives, like what is going on in a specific fight, conflict, disagreement, 
by just looking at it in isolation. But, but really the stuff that fires us up is not always just about that thing. And in fact, anytime a calm conversation quickly escalates into a full-blown conflict, it's always about something more. It's not just about that thing. And with these two brothers, they have a history. Something happened between the two of them. And it was a big thing. It was a relationship ending thing. It was like a, you know, if I ever see you again, it'll be to kill you with an army of 400 people sort of a thing, okay? And I think it can lead us to wonder, that is an extreme reaction. What happened? And we actually know this because we can flash back in scripture to the exact incident. Genesis chapter 27, verse 31 says this, Esau prepared a delicious meal and he brought it to his father. But his father, Isaac, asked, who are you? That's not a good sign, right? Esau replied, um, your son, <laughs> your firstborn son, Esau. Now I'm getting scared. Um, Isaac began to tremble. This is the father uncontrollably. And he said, then who just served me? I've already eaten and I blessed him. And when Esau heard this, he let out a bitter cry. What about me? Bless me too. But Isaac said, I can't. Your brother tricked me. He's taken away your blessing. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on here. And the biggest piece is a bit of cultural context that really doesn't apply much to the way we live our lives today. They keep talking about this blessing, which you get a, a sense is a big deal to these people. And essentially, the blessing they're referencing is something called a birthright. It was the right of the firstborn son in this culture to inherit the majority of his father's possessions, his money, and also his authority and replace him as the head of the family. And so Esau was the oldest son. He was destined to receive the blessing. And the blessing is typically given in a ceremony that's built around food and other family members. And it is irreversible. And although it, it's handed off in a moment, it doesn't fully go into effect until the patriarch passes away. And what we discover here is that Jacob steals the birthright from his brother. And it's permanent. Like to cross it over into today's society, this would be like if you had the, the, like the benefit of growing up with a dad who built a multi-million dollar company from scratch and everybody knew that he had left it in his will to you. Like you were destined to inherit this company and not only that, you were going to be the CEO. You were going to get to call the shots and make the decisions. And at the very last minute when your father was sort of getting old and senile, somebody else in your family got to him first, manipulated him, got him to legally sign over the company to them and cut you out completely. And those contracts are legally binding and can't be reversed. You get nothing, they get everything. That's what's happening in this story. And it drives a wedge between these people. As you can imagine, in verse 20, uh, chapter 27, verse 41, it says this. From that time on, Esau hated Jacob. You think? Because their father had given him the blessing. And Esau began to scheme. I will soon be mourning my father's death. And then I will kill my brother, Jacob. And I imagine that he said it in the same samurai costume that Ramses was wearing earlier. And, and the, his mouth didn't match the words that were coming out. Is that just what it feels like to me? Then I will kill my brother, Jacob. 
So if we flash back to where we started, these guys go out to survey the scene. And when they see Esau coming with a giant caravan of people, it looks like an army. It has to be an army, even if it's not one. And the reason that they're going to interpret it as that is because obviously Esau hates Jacob. If he's coming towards him with a bunch of people, clearly it has to be to kill him. They run with this assumption because what else could it be? And I think this happens to a lot of us where we see a situation and we are unable to interpret it as it is. We see it through the lens of all of this stuff that has happened to us and in us with them and with others before that moment. Because the reality of it is past trauma with a person makes even neutral interactions with that person appear threatening, right? When someone has hurt you before, even when they're doing something that they don't mean to hurt you, doesn't it still feel hurtful? Because you don't trust them anymore. And what happens is when we push relational risks down and we don't deal with them, they start distorting the reality all around us. We are unable to see things clearly and you end up living your entire life through the lens of your hurt. And I think when we drop in on this story, Jacob has spent 20 years living this way, interpreting his life, his relationships, his situations through the lens of his trauma. And you've probably experienced this too, where you saw something or heard something and it set you off. You interpreted it in a way that who knows if it was true. It's what felt true to you at the moment. It felt aggressive even if it wasn't. It didn't matter. You were just trying to protect yourself. Maybe somebody said something that hit a nerve from your past and you experienced this sudden rush of pain and fear and adrenaline and your brain and your body just jumped into reaction. And everyone who's just watching the situation and your disproportionate reaction to the situation is like, what is going on, right? They're confused. They have no idea why you are reacting the way you are. And here's what's crazy. Sometimes you don't know why you're reacting the way you are. You ever snap on somebody and then later you're like, that was crazy. <laughs> People are like, why did you do that? And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, that really frustrated me. And when someone in our orbit overreacts to the same thing over and over and over again, you start to learn over time intuitively. Like if you wanna keep peace, there are certain subjects that you just avoid altogether. And I, I think like in the life of Jacob, like if you knew him, people would just figure out over time, like, listen, if you want to stay on this guy's good side, don't bring up his family, especially his brother. Don't mention his brother. Don't ever accuse him of lying, even if he is. He will go off. Why? I don't know but it is not pretty. And almost everybody has stuff like this. Stuff that others around us learn are sort of off limits for us. You've learned this with the people in your life as well. These things are called buttons. And I wanna just give you a definition of this so we're all on the same page. A button is a surface level sensitivity to certain words, actions, or environments that trigger an instantaneous defensive reaction 
connected to past trauma more than the current situation. In other words, someone says something, they do something, you find yourself in a certain place, and it's like you're, even before your brain connects the dots, your body is signaling to you, something about this doesn't feel right, doesn't feel safe, we need to do what we need to do to protect ourselves. And we just react. And some of you, like, this is why relationships are so tough for you. Because once people start getting close, they, they either accidentally or intentionally push a button and you react. And maybe you're not sure why. Maybe you are, but you don't want to go there. And the problem, of course, is not your button. It's the fact that they accidentally pushed it, right? It's all them. And we decide to push them away and build a wall so nobody can get to the buttons. Maybe those of you in here that are like parents, maybe you had the same thought I did of like, yeah. I mean, I, there is some stuff that messed me up. But you know what? My kids are gonna be different. You know what I mean? I'm not perfect, but I'm gonna raise them differently so that they don't have any buttons in their life. And let me just tell you something that'll make you sad because it made me sad is according to all the research, psychologists tell us that there is no way to avoid having buttons in your life. No matter how great your childhood is, no matter how amazing your parents are, because the reality of it is, what wounds us most isn't necessarily uh, what is objectively most wounding. What it has to do with is an expectation of the way we wanted things to be, the way we thought they should be, and the fact that it happened differently in a way that hurt us, and that we've determined, often subconsciously, I'm never gonna let myself be hurt in that way again. And when your buttons are pushed, you may not even know like which one was pushed, but you can tell that it was, because in the moment, you suddenly feel disrespected, rejected, abandoned, misunderstood, not good enough, and you respond to those feelings, not the current situation. And some people get extremely emotional and they get all confrontational, and other people just sort of shut down and back off entirely. But what all of us do is we lose the ability to actually evaluate the motives of the person who just pushed that button. We see them as the enemy who's out to get us, even if they're our own family who loves us. And this is why we all have these moments where a conversation that starts innocently escalates very quickly. Where someone says, hey, sweetie, what do you think we could do to trim our budget? And your reaction is, how dare you? I don't believe this. I mean, why are you trying to control me, okay? This isn't love. This isn't love what I signed up for right here. Why are you being this way, okay? I'm not irresponsible. Why am I the one that has to make cuts? I didn't do anything wrong. And you're going off on them and they're sitting across from you and they have no idea what is happening right now. They're just like, okay, she's really mad. I don't know why. I thought we were trying to solve a joint problem and I think she wants me dead. And what, what happened in this moment is that a button got pushed, maybe more than one. And when it does, we just react in whatever way we think will make those bad feelings go away. 
And what is crazy is, typically, maybe you notice this in your own relationship, your reactions tend to push their buttons back. And then they're like, whoa. And then they push back. But, and that pushes your buttons, and then just around and around you go. It's so fun. It's so fun. How many of you, you have gotten to a place where you've realized in your relationship, some of your close relationships, you just keep having the same fight over and over and over and over again? It starts different ways. That's where you get the variety. <laughs> but it quickly escalates, and it goes to the same spot, and you guys are at each other, and you're doing all the reactionary things that you do to let the other person know that you're not happy. And, of course, you don't take accountability for any of your buttons. You're just attacking their reactions. And you just go around and around and around and around. And it just feels like it's never going to stop. And maybe after, like, a four-day standoff, you suddenly have this, like, epiphany. You're like, you know what? I think this may not entirely be about hand towels. Uh, I'm just spitballing here. And it's not. It was never about that. It was about past trauma and fear and insecurity and defensiveness and denial. In, in fact, this is called a reaction cycle. And um, to help you sort of map yours, I'm just going to very vulnerably, I'm going to show you what mine and my wife's is, okay? Uh, because she didn't get a chance to approve these slides. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I would never show you something that she didn't approve of because I have to go home after this. Um, <laughs> But I, I want to show you this, A, because I just, I believe that honesty and transparency are value, but, but also because hopefully you can see yourself and figure out sort of what your buttons and reactions are. These are my real buttons, okay? Um, when I feel like somebody uh, is not considering me, right? When they've made their plans and they figured out what they're going to do and they didn't think about if I would like that, how that would affect me, what I was going to have to rearrange to make that happen, that pushes my buttons. Uh, when I feel like I'm being misunderstood, when I say something, someone's like, oh, yeah, you think this. And I'm like, that's not even close to what I think, right? I get so frustrated by that. When I feel like someone is trying to control me. How many of you love being controlled? Oh, nobody. Uh, that's so frustrating. And when I feel like somebody is trying to control me instead of giving me choices and allow me to participate, I get so upset. When I, when I feel like somebody is seeing me as lazy, when they're just like, say something in a critical way that makes me feel like, oh, you, you're not doing enough. And I'm like, oh, you don't even know what I've done. And I just put, and like, when these buttons get pushed, anything that pushes these buttons, I just react. I don't think about these reactions. It just happens automatically. I rationalize, that's one of my reactions. And I'm real good at it. I talk people into things for a living, okay? That's not fun to be married to, you know what I mean? I've just, I've got all these reasons why it's okay that I did what I did and it's not that bad. I blame usually her. Uh, for the reason that things ended up the way they did. I hate that this one's on the slide, but it was too late to erase it when I got here. I pout, you know what I mean? I, like, I, I stalk around like, so that she knows that I'm in a bad mood and it's probably her fault, you know? I withdraw, you know? I, like, if she wants me to be a part of something, I'm like, I'm not gonna do that thing, you know? And then I indulge, you know what I mean? I'm like, I don't need you in this relationship because I got leftover ribs from lunch, and a Netflix show you wouldn't like anyway. So I'm going to be in there. You live your life, I'll live mine. And when I react this way, this tends to push my wife's buttons. And her buttons are, you know, like not feeling heard. Like when she feels like she's not getting a voice. Like I'm not really listening to what she's saying, the story she's telling, how she's feeling. Like when she feels like she's being told that she's not good enough. Which if I'm like, hey, babe, what if we did this? She's like, oh, you're saying that I'm horrible? And I'm like, oh, that's not what I thought I was saying. But 
pushes her buttons, when she feels like she's being unappreciated, when, uh, like when somebody, especially me, doesn't see all she's doing and contributing and how much she's invested in what's going on in our family and our life, or when she feels like she's being treated unfairly, like, like there's not a balance of what is being contributed and done, and, and that stuff pushes her buttons, and then she just reacts. She doesn't even think about it. It just happens automatically, and her first natural reaction is to get angry. She doesn't say she's angry, but I can tell. I can tell. And she'll start criticizing you know, suddenly it's like, well, you guys should do this and you should do that and whatever. And it's like, we're all getting a bunch of orders around the house. She starts defending like whatever thought she has or position that she has. She doesn't want to talk about her feelings because everything is just about, here's the list of things that you guys should be doing in a different way. And then she will just do busy work to avoid having to have that hard conversation. So if I ever come home and my wife is angrily cleaning, I know something bad happened. I don't know if I did it or my kids did it. And I'm just like, let's, let's just start cleaning too. I don't know what to do. We're all in trouble. We're all in trouble. She's mad. And that, here's what's crazy. When she reacts that way, it kind of, it naturally pushes my buttons, right? Because, because she's doing that, she's being all critical. And I'm just like, well, you don't even understand where I'm coming from, you know? Um, and you, you didn't even consider me, which is why I ended up in this situation to begin with. And because you're doing all this busy work, you're not paying attention to me. And when you criticize me, it feels like you're trying to control me and how I do everything. And then that makes my buttons feel pushed. And then I react and then that pushes her buttons. And we just keep going around and around and around. But it's only been 20 years. <laughs> do you see like some of yourself here? They're probably different buttons, different reactions because you're you and I'm me. But we tend to do this, and we just, sort of, we just sort of keep trudging up and doing the same things over and over again. And the reason that we're blind to it is because we think it's about what's happening right now as opposed to being self-aware enough to understand, like, oh, this isn't really about this. What about saying hi and that you're glad for a visit to your brother would make him want to kill you with an army of 400 people? Nothing. It's not about that. And oftentimes the, the conflicts that we're getting into with each other are not about that. And if we don't do the self-work to understand where these reactions are coming from, we'll never be able to stop them, to take a time out and push back and say, maybe this really isn't about this, to get underneath and deal with ourselves. And some of us have been circling this for so long, we're just like, what, 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 how do we stop? What do we do? And I, I don't know. So let's close in prayer. <laughs> Lord, just kidding. That'd be horrible. Just know, just, I don't know, eat some candy, I guess. Like, have fun at the after party. Here's the real answer. And, and the real answer to something is never, like, as fun or as easy as you want it to be. So just prep yourself for that. Repairing a relationship requires you to take responsibility for your feelings and actions instead of blaming or changing theirs. If you actually want your relationships to improve instead of attacking them for their reactions and being frustrated at how sensitive their buttons are, you're going to have to acknowledge what your buttons are. You're going to have to take responsibility for your reactions. You're going to have to be self-aware enough and self-controlled enough to stop the cycle. Because the truth is the problem isn't all them, no matter how much you want to believe it is. And even if it was, you can't control them anyway. So you've been trying for years and it's not working. It's getting worse. 
because that's how it goes. And here's the reality. Everybody eventually has to face themselves. Like we all are pushed to a point eventually where we have to get real about what, what's going on with us. The question is, will you choose to or will it be forced on you? And not by that other person. But here's the reality. Life has a way of backing us all into a corner that forces us to take a long, hard look in the mirror at what part we play in the dynamics that we share with the people around us. Eventually, you're gonna have to humble yourself and admit that you are a part of what is wrong in your relationships. James, the brother of Jesus says it this way, James chapter four, verse six, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Like here's essentially what he's saying here. Uh, everybody will be humbled. Here's the question. Are you going to do it or is God going to do it for you? Because it will happen. Now, Jacob in this story, nobody would ever describe him as a, a humble person. That's just not who he was. In fact, he does decide to like go home and, and talk to his brother, but he doesn't really choose this because he's so humble. The reason he does it is because he was living with his uncle and his uncle pushed one of his buttons and then he overreacted to him and now his uncle wants to kill him. So he's running from that guy and he's like, well, I can either have my uncle kill me or my brother. I guess I'll choose option A, you know what I mean? And he just decides to go this direction. And this is what he ends up learning caught between all of this craziness in his life. Something that God wants you to understand about yours, that no matter how hard you try, you cannot outrun your own dysfunction. And this is what we think is gonna happen. This didn't work, it's all them. I just need to ditch this job and work somewhere else. I need to ditch this partner and find a new one. And what we end up doing is we take all of our dysfunction with us, we pack it up, and then we unpack it on this other person. And then we just start a new cycle with them of buttons and reactions that we're convinced are not our problem. And I, I think this is exactly what happens to Jacob. I imagine Jacob having all these fights with his wives and they're getting into it and they don't really understand why he's overreacting to certain things. And it's because they're pushing buttons that were installed by his dad and brother that, that his wives have never met. They don't even know. They don't understand. And I think this happens to a lot of us where we get into something with somebody and oftentimes the person that we're fighting with is just a stand-in for the person we ought to be fighting with. But we don't, or we can't. Right? We don't feel like we have the courage to. Maybe we don't know how. Maybe we don't think it'll be productive. Maybe what happened between us was like 20 years ago. And we're like, I don't want to trudge all that up. It's going to be weird. Maybe they're not in our life anymore. Maybe they're dead. At this point in our story, Jacob's father is dead. What happened between them, he's not going to be able to patch up directly with him. But he can still make amends with his brother. It just isn't going to be easy. But he begins moving in that direction and he finds out that Esau is looking for him, which makes him afraid and ashamed because the thing that happened between them that he's been trying to ignore on the outside, on the inside, has haunted him every single day of his life. 
He thinks about like what he did and who he hurt and the way it tore his family apart. And that's why it's hard for him to come home. There's a difference between coming home and like coming home. Like when you haven't been there for a while, when that place isn't really your home anymore and you decide to make the journey back, sometimes it's the hardest drive you will ever make because sometimes going back just feels like too much to bear. And the reason is because you're not just gonna have to face them, you're gonna have to face your former self. That part of you that you've been running from, you're gonna have to actually acknowledge. And we don't wanna do that. That's painful. And what is worse about this is that when you have that interaction with them, you cannot control their response. Wouldn't that make it so much easier? Do you ever think about that? Like, man, if I just do the right thing here, God, can you guarantee that they'll respond in, in the right way? But there's no promise of that. Like just because you apologize the right way or you own your part of the thing doesn't mean they're gonna do the right thing on their end. And that is a risk that a lot of times we just don't wanna take. But Jacob goes anyway. It says this in Genesis chapter 33, verse three, Jacob went on ahead. He approached his brother and he bowed seven times before him. And then Esau ran out to meet him and chopped his head off with it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's what I thought was gonna happen. It actually says he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they both wept. And it's surprising because it's just like, you don't think that's what's gonna happen. And the reason why I don't think it's gonna happen is because when does that ever, that never happens. And that's what makes it such an astounding story because reconciliation is rare. But I gotta tell you, just because it's rare doesn't mean it's impossible. Although it is impossible without God. I don't think any relationship is beyond repair because it's never beyond the grace of God. But there is nothing that you can do in your own strength to fix things on your own when they've been deeply broken. But here's the good news that I want to give you today. I think the good news that Jacob discovered because he didn't just patch things up with his brother. He was able to actually patch things up with his father who wasn't even there and be at peace altogether. How is this possible? It's because in reality, you can experience deep relational healing even if the other person doesn't participate. And this is the lie we tell ourselves, that I'm not gonna be okay until they acknowledge what they did, until they say they're sorry, until they come to the table too, until the, right? But in fact, we don't necessarily need that to become whole. One New Testament author says this, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, try your best to live in peace with everyone. Try hard to be holy. In other words, it ain't easy. Be sure that no one misses out on God's grace. See to it that a bitter plant doesn't grow up. And if it does, it will cause trouble and it will hurt many other people. Now, here's what I don't like about this verse. You ever read something in the Bible and you're like, well, I don't like that part, let's just cross that out. I'm not gonna do that. Here's what I don't like about this. I don't wanna try my best. Can we just be honest? 
I'm sick of trying. Why don't they try their best? You know what? Why don't they even try at all? That's what I'm looking for. And this author is saying, like, I get it. You are hurt. You're wounded. And that's valid. And what happened was not okay. And you don't own the whole thing. But you cannot control what they do. You cannot control what they take accountability for. You can't control what inner work they're willing or not willing to do. All you can do is try your best to deal with your heart and your trauma and your insecurity and your anger and your overreactions. And until you are willing to face and deal with yourself, regardless of what they do, you will never feel at peace with them or anyone else. And I would argue that the person you most need to be at peace with is you. Because that plant of bitterness is wrecking your life more than theirs. Here's my question for you this morning. Who do you need to face? Like what relational issue is God inviting you to address? And this is the worst one. Are you trying your best? Or have you stopped trying altogether? I think the reason Jacob and Esau's story ends so miraculously is that they both individually got with God ahead of time to do their inner work before they ever stood face to face and encountered one another. This moment is miraculous because each of these men had decided in advance to make peace with God and themselves and decided no matter what he does, no matter what he says, I am gonna do what's right. I'm gonna reflect my God. And this is what Christ invites us to do. If you're somebody that's a Jesus follower, it's not even a suggestion, it's a mandate. And Jesus says this, you know what it is to truly follow me is to treat other people not as they've treated you, is to treat other people like I have treated you. And that's hard to do. I think the miraculous moment we see in this story is a result of Jacob determining that he was going to humble himself and ask forgiveness and offer to make amends, even if it meant that his brother would try and take revenge in that moment. And on Esau's part, I think he had decided ahead of time that he was gonna forgive his brother even if his brother never said sorry. That's called spiritual maturity. A lot of us think that being spiritually mature is knowing a bunch of Bible verses, having a perfect church attendance, going to certain classes, doing certain things, not saying certain words. You know what? It's none of that. Spiritual maturity is the degree to which when you find yourself in a situation in which you want to treat someone according to how badly they've hurt you, instead, you treat them according to how God has treated you. When I look at a situation like that, instantly I think that person, they know something about God. I wonder if you can imagine 
if this is, like what it would be like if your family worked this way. Like if you made this decision in your family and among your relationships to say like, listen, in this family, when we're wrong, we admit it. Even if the thing that we did is only like a little thing and what they did is a big thing, we don't point fingers first. We own up to what we did. Even if we're the person with all the authority, all the power, and we don't have to, we still do because it's the right thing to do. We want to live at peace with everyone as much as it's up to us. In this family, when we wrong someone, we go out of our way to make amends at all costs. No matter how much time, energy, effort, money it takes to make up for the thing that we did, we're willing to do. In this family, when we are wronged, we spend time with God in order to release that pain of what happened and be able to offer forgiveness even if they never apologize. That doesn't mean that we give them unlimited access to our life from that point on, that we don't learn certain lessons, that we don't put certain boundaries in place, but it does mean that we don't harbor this bitterness in our heart that prevents us from ever moving on, that we refuse to allow buttons in our life to fester and go unchecked because we don't want to look in the mirror. And some of you are like, man, my family is so far from that. I don't even know where to start. I want to just give you just one practical baby step you could take today. Whoever that person is that comes to your mind and you're just like, man, I, we, I need to work on this. I, I want this to be different. I would admit to them this first thing. I want a better relationship with you. I would think whoever it is you're at odds with, they may not even know this. I've seen a husband and wife sit across from each other in my office and they're fighting about so many things. And I will ask this question, which seems like a, a simple question to me, but it's not for them. What do you want? And to hear one person say to the other, I, I don't want it to be like this. I want a better relationship with them. And the look in the other person's eyes when they realize they mean it. It's transforming. And the next question is this. What's one small way I can demonstrate that I care about you? Sometimes we think we're caring for someone in a way that they don't read care. And we just need to help them along. We need the same help. I want this relationship. You don't feel that from me. What's something I could do to prove that to you? And then, this is the hardest part, then you have to actually do the thing they ask you to do. But I'll also tell you from my experience, it's not like the big thing that you're afraid it's gonna be. It's usually a small thing. Would you just consider me in this sort of circumstance? Would you mind it if we just did this one little thing together? Could you call me and talk to me in this sort of a circumstance? It's like, oh, that's all that it's gonna take to take the first step sometimes is so doable. It just requires one thing for you to swallow your pride. But it's worth it. Not just because of what it does between the two of you, but because of the peace that it will bring to you. And I wanna pray that God would give you the ability to walk out of here and take action in this way. Would you bow your heads across this room 
And let's just pray that God would help us to do that. God, we thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy in each of our lives. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. We thank you that no matter how we treat you, that you continue to love us, to guide us, to direct us, to give us your grace, to heap upon us second chances and more wisdom about what to do next. And God, I pray that we would know what to do in the relationships that have been torn the worst in our orbit, that you would help us to map our buttons and our reactions, that you would help us to face the hurt that is driving so much of the present moment. God, I pray that you would help us to address and heal from our past, that you'd help us to be aware of how it affects the present, and that you would help us to react more like you in the future. God, may it be so as we trust you day in and day out. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.